Shabbat Shalom. I'm reading um, James chapter 4, 1 through 12 from the complete Jewish Bible. What is causing all the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it your desires battling inside you? You desire things and don't have them. You kill and are jealous, and you still can't get them. So you fight and quarrel. The reason you don't have is that you don't pray. Or you pray and don't receive because you pray with the wrong motive, that of wanting to indulge your own desires. You unfaithful wives, don't you know that loving the world is hating God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Or do you suppose the scripture speaks in vain when it says that there is a spirit in us which longs to envy, but the grace he gives is greater, which is why it says, God opposes the arrogant, but to the humble he gives grace. Therefore, submit to God. Moreover, take a stand against the adversary, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Clean your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Wail, mourn, sob. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, stop speaking against each other. Whoever speaks against a brother or judges a brother is speaking against Torah and judging Torah. And if you judge Torah, you are not a doer of what Torah says, but a judge. There, there, is, there is but one giver of Torah, and he is also the judge with the power to deliver and to destroy. Who do you think you are judging your fellow human being? If you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll know that uh, I've been preaching about messages, a uh, series of messages from the holidays. Um, the festivals, God's Moadim, and uh, the rest of May will be devoted to messages that address themes from Shavuot. Shavuot, as you may know, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost is a very rich uh, spiritually and uh, will take time. But today, I'm t- I... I'm taking a break, and you have a special treat in that we have um, David Katz coming uh, to bring the Word of God. And I just want to take a moment uh, to embarrass him. Um, part of long-term vision, long-term dream for me has been the expectation that God will raise up others who will come into the Messianic Jewish ministry. And uh, it's been my delight in the last few years to see God raise uh, a program at Denver Seminary in Messianic Judaism led by Elaine Dallaire. And uh, David Katz is part of the first class. And um, it's a delight to welcome him to the pulpit. David, would you please come? Avinu Malkenu, we thank you, our Father and our King, for your sovereign and gracious plans. We thank you, Lord, for your gift and calling that you have for each of us. Lord God, we thank you how, for the fact that you have ordained and equipped each of us to serve you. And we thank you, Lord God, for your gifts and calling on David and Jessica's life. We pray, Lord God, that today would be another milestone in his life as he comes and ministers your word. And we pray, Lord God, that you will be the one to do the speaking and that we would listen and listen well and receive your word and apply it and grow by it. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen seen this work before. Something happens with this mic stand now, I think, right? Usually move it up. That's all right. I was waiting for, you know, I was waiting for the embarrassing part because you said you would embarrass me. It's kind of like when you get a new car and you, it's good if you just get a scratch on it right away, get that out of the way. So I was hoping you'd embarrass me more so I didn't have to take care of that during the, during the presentation here. But um, 
Or the young, I saw there's a young guy right there. There's a young one. I was hoping they'd be back because it was, it was uh, um, I'm not so familiar necessarily nowadays with the, the rules regarding, well, I know the rules regarding driving, but the rules regarding getting your license, you know? Um, and I'm sure folks like Ariel know, know it inside now. When I was about, I think it was in the 10th, 10th grade, I remember, I knew it, like when I was, you know, 15, it was 15 and 9 months, I think, at that point, and I, was that, and I had the day figured out. I was going to let my dad know, I'm, this is when I'm getting my learner's permit. And then, you know, three months after that, this is the day that we're going to the MVA, and I'm going to, of course, pass my, t and then I'll, then I'll be able to drive. And, you know, and didn't think about what car, where, maybe he didn't want me to, I was, you know, all these kind of things, but I had it all figured out. And I remember, uh, I don't know if I got it that, but I got it pretty close. I definitely, I got it at 16. I don't remember if it was exactly the way I planned it. But, uh, and you'll realize in a little bit, the story really has nothing to do with this message, but um, it's just going to make me, me relax a little bit. But um, I remember when I first got my license, I mean, I was Johnny on the spot. If you want, you needed, you needed some, some gum, I'll, I'll go. You know, I'll, you know, I'll go, go to the store. You need some milk, Mom? Oh, sure, I'll drive, you know. And, uh, but I remember one of the, those were all local trips, but I remember... One of the first big times my dad was going to take me, you know, he said, okay, well, let's go, up, let's go to the mall. I grew up on the east coast of Maryland, and, uh, or on the east coast, Maryland, not on the east coast of Maryland, but on the east, east, east coast. And uh, the capital is called Annapolis. Anyways, he said, well, let's go to Annapolis Mall. I've probably been to Annapolis Mall 300 times over the last, you've been to Annapolis, 300 times in my life. And we get in the car, and I'm like, okay. And he, my dad's there, and he's like, let's go to Annapolis Mall. And I'm like, I knew to the end of the driveway. That's about all I knew. And uh, he was just amazed. like, what do you mean you don't know how to get to Annapolis Mall? He's like, we've been there, you know, a hundred, how many times have you been there? And uh, so I guess I just, I just didn't really pay attention, you know, to how we, how we got there. And uh, no, no offense to the, to the good rabbi here, but sometimes when I'm up here and all of a sudden you're in front of people, you're like, wait a minute, what goes on? You know, how do I do this? How many services have I been to? Uh, I should know what to do. I should know how to, how to speak or how many classes I've been to. I've been studying, and I should know what to say. But it's like all of a sudden, uh, it's a little different when you're sort of behind the, <laughs> behind the wheel. So I thought that was kind of, I don't know why it made me think about my driver's license, but it still sticks with me many years later that I didn't know, I didn't know how to get past my, out of my neighborhood, basically. But uh, hopefully we'll, God will show up here and we'll, we'll, we'll learn something today. There's actually, I'm kind of going to give you two parts to two parts to the message, um, sort of two acts, and there, there won't be intermission, so you're just going to have to struggle through. Um, but the sort of the first act, as it were, uh, is I'm going to just, you know, I, we've, my wife and I, we've been here f uh, in this city for almost two years now, and been coming to Yishatzion for the majority of that time. And I, I've met a lot of people in, in here, and we've spent time together, but a lot I haven't, and even, even so, it's t typically a once-a-week kind of thing. So the first part of what I'm going to do is uh, just sort of tell you a little bit about my background and, uh, and as far as I can tell why I'm here. Sort of giving you one half of the story, one side of the story as it were, but the reality is the other side of the story I don't know because God knows that side of the story. But I'm going to kind of look at the facts and, and kind of get you up to, up to date as to why I think I'm standing here. And, uh, and if any of you have any other insight beyond what I say that God's told you, please, please share it with me because I know, I know only my half of the story and it's sort of spotty, as best I can remember, uh, you know, three decades in the past, basically. Um, so that's going to be the first half, and then I'll, then I'll get into this passage of James. And I was, or actually, I was hoping Linda would come up and just further explain what she read. That would be great. I could just take the second, second half off. That would be wonderful. <laughs> but um, so the first half uh, of the story is kind of why I'm here and uh, kind of how, how I've arrived here, so, so best I can tell. But I was raised, as I said, I was, I was born in, in, uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. area, and I lived in Maryland for the first uh, 18 years of my life. And I grew up in a, in a conservative Jewish home. And does anyone know what conservative Jewish means? I don't want to explain all my terms, but very few hands. So I'll explain. Uh, back, uh, you know, things are different now. There's so many branches and so forth of, of Judaism. Now, things I've probably never heard about. There's Judaism your way, which who knows? That's kind of whatever, you, whatever goes. But the big picture of Judaism, which I think still is fairly valid today, is you're going to fall into one of three main categories, either Reform Judaism, 
conservative Judaism or orthodox Judaism. For those of you who are sort of in, been raised in an evangelical perspective in Christianity, wipe those terms, what those terms mean out of your mind. Reform is not reform like reformers. Conservative is necessarily conservative is not a real, you know, staunch view of the Bible. We believe it's true kind of thing and orthodox um, may or may not actually be true. But the sort of simple picture is reform, uh, it's sort of levels of religiousness, so to speak. Um, a reform Judaism uh, there's not much. There's not as much. Uh, typically, there's not as much Hebrew spoken. Um, there may or may not be a real um, uh, belief in the sort of the Bible is what it says it is. Maybe there might even be atheistic beliefs in there. Not all reform, but that's sort of the general category. Uh, conservative is a little more. Uh, a little more Hebrew is spoken. Uh, a little more observant. You might even keep kosher. You're going to observe the the holidays. And then Orthodox is kind of the you know the uh, you go to you go to service. There's going to be no English spoken. It's going to be read at you know 900 miles an hour in Hebrew, and uh, those those kind of things. So, I mean, it's true. If 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 myself, I mean, when I go to an Orthodox synagogue, I, I can I can barely follow as fast as they're reading. Um, so I, I grew up in a conservative uh, in a conservative synagogue. I wouldn't necessarily say the household was conservative, but my dad sort of farmed that that uh, that task out to the conservative synagogue in our in our uh, city that we lived in, there was a conservative and there was a reform, and I went to the conservative one. And um, you start off at a young age. This is really, it's almost torture that I think about it now. From second grade to uh, the time I was about 13, which I guess is around 10th grade or so, or maybe even a little before that, eighth, no, sorry, eighth or ninth grade, somewhere in that middle school area, um, that I would go to school, regular school, for five days a week, and then two evenings a week you'd go to Hebrew school. I mean, torture. It was just horrible. I had a friend named Richard Chessis, I remember, and he, we was at his house playing one day, and, and my mom came to pick me up, and, and we went, and his mom was going to pick him up. He just took off running, and he ran all around the neighborhood. She didn't catch him. He didn't show up that. It was unbelievable. He was one of like three or four boys, I think, so it was a little different. You know, I, I had no choice, but uh, it, it's just, you know, you got to go to school and then Hebrew school. Um, and a little interesting tidbit, I'll tell you about this, this synagogue, which is no longer, at least in the building that it is in, in the place I grew up at. But the city I grew up in, the, each section of the city was named for a letter of the alphabet, but when, a letter of the alphabet, and all the streets in that section uh, started with the letter of the alphabet. I live in the C section, which was called Chapel Forge. Is that funny? C section, that's pretty funny, isn't it? The C section, and uh, so what's so funny about C section? Uh, and so all the streets, you know, there was there was Craft Lane, Chesney Lane, Chapel Forge Drive, Chestnut, Chalford, all these things with C's. Pretty pretty, you know, heavy duty system there. Pretty hard to figure out. The synagogue was located in the T section, which was Tulip Grove, and it was interesting. The there's a main street that the synagogue was pretty much on, but there was a little access road that kind of was like a little horseshoe that went around on that main road, and that was named Torah Lane. It's still named Torah Lane. I assume it's because of the synagogue. I don't think they just happened to build on Torah Lane. But many years I went back there, and I, and I was going, just wanted to drive by the synagogue, and you drive from the M section, so on Moylan Drive, and then you cross a particular highway, and it, the, the street is the same street, but it's now a T street. And guess what the name of that street is? Because that's the street that Tor Lane is off of, and the synagogue's right there on the corner of Tor Lane and Trinity Drive. Can you believe that? That's pretty neat. I don't, but I don't know what that means. I thought that was kind of interesting. I, just, I never knew that, but I thought, I saw that many years later, the Trinity Drive and Tor Lane. Uh, so it's a little, again, not really related to the story, but I thought it was interesting. Um, but the main, main thing that I remember from, from those years at going to uh, the, the evening uh, Hebrew school was you learn Hebrew, and you learned other stuff. And I don't remember a lot of, uh, I don't ever remember learning, for instance, when I learned the, you know, the Shema and the, the verses after it, that that was from the, the Torah or the Bible. Uh, I learned that many years later, but I learned how to read it. I could read it at breakneck speed. We had... Um, we had a, a game called Beat the Clock. And the goal was to see how fast you could read it, quite honestly. Um, because a lot of prayers and stuff, you go to a synagogue, there are standing prayers where you read certain sections of the book and you're supposed to read on your own. And the thing, you kind of look at your, your buddies to see who's, you know, how many pages has he gone through yet, and you pretend that you're going through those pages. And you don't want to sit down too quick, but you don't want to sit down, you don't want to take too long because, you know, you don't want people to think, well, you, you can't read that fast, but then again, you want to be solemn, and you want to sit down, and Mark knows a little bit about this. Mark and I went to a reform service a couple weeks ago, and, and Mark gave me a hard time, I didn't sort of clue. There was actually reform, it was more like a conservative service, but he didn't know what to do, and they were doing things like that, and he was standing there, and he kind of got mad at me afterwards. You didn't tell me what I was supposed to do, and we're doing all this stuff, and 
you know. I said, man, Mark, you sat down too quick, man. What are you doing? You know, he, but, um, so that was my experience in, in Hebrew school, basically. And the whole point of, of Hebrew school at that point was to uh, have a bar mitzvah at age 13. That was the main, the main thing. And uh, at, uh, at 13, that's what I did. And, uh, you know, I, I, I did that and made all, and then you have a big kind of bar mitzvah speech and I made all kinds of promises of what I'm going to do from here on out. And, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to be part of this men's group every week and I'm going to wrap to fill in and I'm going to, you know, dub and what I ended up doing was, you know, you don't go to, you don't go anymore. <laughs> so that's, uh, now I don't know if I was the typical, what we say is, you know, you, you're a bar mitzvah at 13, atheist at 14. I don't know if that's, if that was really the case with me necessarily. Um, because more or less in my household, we observed the main things. We had Passover seders, and we lit Hanukkah candles, and my parents went to, to the synagogue for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Basically, that, that was it. So then we had the mezuzah on our door. So I'm telling you all this. This is a typical, you know, we sort of you know, interact with, with Jewish people. There may be some that, that come here that you interact with. They kind of know where they're coming from uh, when you hear these things, and you assume, well, they know their Old Testament inside and out, and they know all this stuff. Um, I believe when we look into the book of James today, I believe it was a little different at that time, that I think that a lot of the references he gives, probably they did know things inside and out. But um, it's not the case. I don't know that my father today could tell me where the Shema is located, other than on the doorpost of his house. I don't think he knows. Oh, yeah, it's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And this is, you know, the time or the recounting of the law. He wouldn't know any of that stuff. And I didn't know that either. So we did those things in our home. But that was kind of the extent of it. and to this day, I can't put my finger on the one sort of overarching thing that I came away from with regard to my religious education and my family upbringing, but it's common, uh, and we've talked about it here before, the, the, I could believe in anything but Jesus. You know, that was the only thing, that was the only thought. If I pulled something from my religious upbringing, that was it, that I was Jewish, I was chosen. You know, that's, how, that's kind of how the, the, the understanding is. You don't know what for, you just know it's, you think it's something special, you think it's, you're just better than everyone else. It's terrible, it's really, it's really terrible. <laughs> Um, but you do, and you also know that you're not Christian. You, know, you, you cannot be that. Those are the things that you that you kind of walk away with. So even at 13, I, that's what I held on to for uh, for many years after that. Nothing really happened in my religious uh, upbringing beyond that, other than uh, I would go to a few family <coughs> events from time to time, and you say the mourners' cottage at, at funerals, and you, you know it's not until probably about seven years ago, at least, that I knew what that said. I thought it was, a, you know, a prayer for the dead, for dead people and, you know, oh, some lament of some kind versus the, the, the praise that it is. I had no idea. Um, but those, are the, those were the things that I, that I had done. And that was sort of my, the extent of my religiousness. And when I went away to college, I went to, uh, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know what a Bible belt meant. Uh, you know, I, you can imagine maybe like Batman with some Bibles hanging off of it or something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But... Uh, um, you know, I didn't know what that meant, but that's where I, that's where I ended up living, in the Bible Belt, of, of the, or one of the Bible Belts of the country in southwestern Virginia. So if you hear any accent and it doesn't sound like Maryland, it's southwestern Virginia, believe it or not. Um, and I just got around all kinds of, of, you know, Christian folk, you know. And I just knew that I wasn't that. And I knew that they didn't know what I was as well. Um, there's a lot of ignorance, to put it bluntly, on both sides of the table. And I think that's part of what hopefully we, we're, we're handling in the Messianic Judaism program is to kind of have both sides of the, the table to understand what's going on. But I didn't know, uh, you know, I just knew that I wasn't that, uh, that I wasn't, you know, this Christian, and, but everyone would talk about God and all of these things. And in college, my dad, at some point, he kind of realized I was around these people, and he, he asked me one day, are they converting you, these people you were? Are they converting you? Are they proselytizing you? Not knowing that, that you know, Jews had been involved in that as well. Um, but I really didn't know. But what I knew, I didn't know what that meant other than probably what he was saying is you're not becoming a non-Jew, are you? Um, and that's what, that's what I, so, so he was, it was funny because he, he's, he would ask me and he'd call me up at the Passover and you go into a Passover Seder and before I could say yes or no, he'd say, no, I'm sure you're not. You know, did you go to Rosh Hashanah? No. Nope. And now, of course, just to fast forward, you know, now it's like I wasn't Jewish enough then, now it's like it's just, it's too, you're just too Jewish, you know, kind of thing. And he's sort of flipped places, you can't, can't please him. So it's, it's kind of funny in that respect. But uh, in my time in, in southwestern Virginia, right around uh, my senior year of college, uh, I had a senior level uh, sociology course. Um, I picked that. That was a, a double major I had. That was my second major because sociology, if there are any sociologists, I apologize. For me, I didn't take it because it was a very demanding curriculum. Uh, so it allowed me to continue the lifestyle which I had grown accustomed to, which involved some events on Friday and Saturday evening. 
Um, but anyways, one of, these, uh, one of these projects I had for, I had a senior project, and it was to uh, go to a, uh, I think we had someone here today who was doing something similar, go to a service um, that's different from your background, your religious background. And uh, so as a Jew, Jewish person, I mean, there was, not that I was religious at that point, at that time anyways, but, but the natural opposite religion was go to a yeah, church, yeah. They're all the same. I mean, there's no difference, right? I mean, if you're not Jewish, you're, you're Christian. I mean, that's, that's the, I'm trying to, I'm cluing you into the mind, you know, if I say these things, you think, well, he's ignorant. Yeah, I'm just cluing you into the mindset I had and the mindset that maybe a lot of uh, just, you know, secular Jewish people, at least in this country, at least in, you know, from, from my, the people that I, where I grew up, that, that's kind of the thought process. You don't really understand, you know, uh, I was invited one time to a non-denominational service. Well, it wasn't non-denominational, it was Christian. What are you talking about? I mean, it was not, you know, I didn't understand what that meant. Non-denom- it was not, it was non, it's non-denominational. So, anyways, I decided I would go to a church because that's clearly the, uh, the opposite of what I, what I would go to. So I went with a, a guy that I knew was a Christian. I went with him. And uh, for those of you who do know about denominations, this was uh, the name of this church was Tridestone Pentecostal Church of Blacksburg, Virginia. So, so, so this was my, I don't know if I'd ever been to a church service before, but this is the one I went to. Now, in reality, I could go there now and it'd be the opposite of what I normally, you know, grew up. Not, not completely, but for them, it was, certainly was the opposite. I mean, you go to, you go to a, a conservative uh, synagogue Shabbat service, and uh, now in the Reformed service there was music, but there's no music. There's, there's, there's chanting of Hebrew, and then there's a sermon, which you know, then you, you and your 12-year-old buddies go outside during. You don't stick around for that because you, know, you pretend you have to go to the restroom or something. You don't hear that. So you don't get, you don't get much in, a, in that kind of service. But um, certainly a Tridestone Pentecostal Church of Blacksburg uh, it was, you know, there was music, exuberant music. There were people shouting, screaming. A woman on stage was absolutely crying her eyes out, saying that God, you know, is just calling you, he's calling you, he's calling you. And I didn't know what that meant. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then, so I didn't, it wasn't like, oh, my, myself. But uh, there, at that moment, I, I went there for a school project. I did. And at that moment, when she, was, uh, when she was yelling like that, this woman was yelling, I was way in the back, which was good for me at the time. I mean, it was a big place. And uh, I still remember to this day, there was, there was something, I don't know if I just felt, un- I felt very uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. I was no longer just take, taking notes. And it wasn't like I felt like embarrassed for her. I felt like I wanted to go, I needed to go down there also. But that was sort of my first brush with, I think, uh, if I were to, if, you know, if you, if you held a gun to my head and I didn't want to be shot, I would say, I believe it was the Holy Spirit you know, that was pulling me at that time, but I didn't know what that was. Uh, and if you would have said the ruach, you know, I wouldn't have known what that was either. So uh, the terminology didn't necessarily make much of a difference. But I didn't know what that was. Um, but it was something that, and I, re- and I, I mean, I fought with everything. I mean, I, I resisted greatly. And to, and to this day, I think, you know, it's, there is a, um, a lot of times we know the truth, you know what I mean? But it, you need, there's something extra that sort of needs you to, to let go of certain things. And I think... My only thought was, this is a Christian church. I mean, I can't go down there because then I would, stop, I would be, become a Christian, you know. And that was sort of the biggest. And from there, for the next several years after that, that was right at the, at the time I graduated, it seemed like God, you know, put me in a work environment where there were just these Christian people all the time and they were talking about God and I was very uncomfortable. But I started getting to a point where I, I, um, I was resisting, but I was doing sort of an educated resisting. So I realized, I started, underst- I started hearing about the gospel. I heard of these guys I was working with, they were talking about vertical alignment and my God family and my country and ty- all this kind of stuff. And like, what are they talking about? They would, but I, I realized, and they would ask me, you know, how are things going? And have you given your life to the Lord? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know what you mean by that. And, but it's, if it was anything, if it was Jesus, no. And I won't because then I, you know, I can't do that. But I started slowly kind of in the closet um, researching on my own. Uh, in the figurative closet, um, researching meaning, you know, what did they, when they're talking about, you know, getting saved in Jesus. I mean, something simple as uh, that Jesus is Jewish and he was Jewish, and that the whole New, you know, the New Testament scriptures are are Jewish. I mean, are written about Jewish people. No idea. Had no idea. That's a you know, have no idea. And I don't think that's that's a very uh, unique just to then. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that even now. When I read the Book of Acts now, and I see that the problem wasn't about 
we can let a Jew into the church. It was like we're letting a, you know, the, the gospel's going to the Gentiles now? It was the complete opposite of the way I'd experienced. And I had these people telling me, you know, don't worry, you're Jewish. God loves the Jews just as, he much, just as much as he does the Christians. And it was just stuff like that that made me feel very isolated and didn't understand this, um, what they were talking about. But I started reading, I started understanding that Jesus was Jewish and so forth and, and a lot of these things. Um, but still there was a, big of a bit of a hindrance when it came to the, the Bible, you know. Um, it didn't mean, again, I had a lot of prayers in my head. And even today, I could go to an Orthodox synagogue or a conservative synagogue, and there's prayers I forgot that as soon as, it, like even Mark, I, Mark didn't know this, but a lot of the stuff I was saying, I hadn't heard it in 30 years. But like just came back into my head. I said, oh yeah, the full, bere, there's a whole thing after the beret, prehagafen, huge thing. I used to love it, and I prayed, oh, and they said, they said it there, and I just, boom, just rattled it right off, you know. And I could do it right now. It's unbelievable. So, but I didn't know if some of these things came out of the Bible. And when every many time people would turn to the Bible, they, one, one night uh, I was with some friends at this at this uh, restaurant, real late at night after work, and we're talking, and they're talking about God again. It was just driving me nuts <laughs> because it felt uncomfortable. I'm not driving me nuts like you guys are crazy. I had no real opinion about it. It wasn't like I knew and they, and they were wrong. I just I knew something was there, and it was just bothering me because. What they were saying made a lot of sense, but I didn't, I didn't know how to sort of reconcile it with, with being Jewish and reconcile it, thinking how I'm going to sort of switch face. And also, they kept talking about this Bible. I mean, like, what does that have to do with anything, you know? <laughs> You're laughing because you understand, right? That, that's right. Okay. <laughs> but it's true. What does that have to do? It sounds, it sounds horrible. What does it have to do with anything? Um, they would turn to scriptures, but for some reason, this particular night, <clears throat> this guy that, I, that uh, actually is a friend of my future and brother-in-law, uh, he, he started talking about, because um, they're working, so we're griping about money and different things like that, and he starts talking about, well, the way to success, you know, one of the ways, secrets of money and handling money is, you know, tithing. Well, first of all, I don't know what tithing means, but he explained what tithing means. And then I realized it means giving your money away. Again, another anti-Jewish concept, <laughs> especially in my household. Um, the, I mean, I did not grow up in a family of, you know, of people who gave money away. You know, we, we, I assume there was dues to pay to the synagogue, and I think they used to buy little, you know, to go to a Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur service, if you, you have to buy a ticket, you know. I remember seeing in the, uh, in the Siddur, which is the prayer book, uh, when we would go, I'd see these little things, like 40 bucks or something, or just, just to be there, you know. And, uh, I mean, a Simcha Torah, you pay to carry the Torah, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, that's, you know, I wouldn't say that's giving your money away. That's you're paying for some honor or something or to be in the synagogue. So uh, I didn't, that, first of all, that concept was just ludicrous to me, uh, giving your money away. When I, you know, my dad, I had a little part-time job. My dad would, he'd say, well, how much did you make? And he'd start adding it up and you save this or whatever. But there was never like, now, how much will we give to the local synagogue? No, it was like, you know, you're going <laughs> to save this and, you know. Um, but for some reason that night, I was sort of in the conversation, but not in the conversation. And this guy kept talking about tithing. And he went to, you don't have to turn there necessarily, but he went to Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. Um, and it says here, it says, Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. And, and I'm sure this is the typical scripture that everybody here hears about in terms of a salvation story, right? Everyone, Luke 6, 38, right? Talking about tithing? No. <laughs> not at all, no. And I don't know why. It wasn't necessarily... What this verse did for me, it wasn't that, I, that, the, that the heavens opened up, so to speak, but what this verse, for some reason, up until this point, maybe I wasn't given the Bible a fair shake, maybe you know, I certainly wasn't reading it, but for some reason, I, I, nothing ever made... This sort of made sense, not from a salvation perspective, but it made sense that I could just... I was like, oh, it's actually something that legitimate in there. Like that, I could picture... I could picture like bagging leaves in, this, in, the, in, the, in the autumn time and pushing them down, shaking them, getting... More, I don't know why. For some reason, at that point, I realized, okay, I believe the Bible's true now. And because of that, all the stuff I'd sort of been in, in the closet studying, I sort of relented and realized, you know, that I wasn't going to, you know, that I was not changing religion, so to speak, that I was sort of accepting um, that this word was true. And, that, and I, I, I prayed the prayer that night. So that was, the, that was the sort of the culmination of all that, all that uh, background. But it certainly wasn't the end of it, because at that point then, I had to go to, a, you know, I had to do something with this information, and I was still in, 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 the, uh, in Southwest Virginia, and there was no, you know, there was no, as far as I knew, I w there was no other, you know, mess I didn't know that such a thing existed as a Messianic believer, but when I got a hold of, um, 
I can't remember the first piece of literature I got a hold of, but I think it was a ministry, a Jewish ministry in North Carolina, Friends of Israel, and in New Jersey. Uh, what's that? New Jersey. New Jersey. And uh, so just knowing that it sort of started me on this, on this trip of realizing that hmm, there are other Jewish people that believe in, in Jesus, and it's not just that the Jewish people that believe in Jesus, but like really you know, non-Jewish people are sort of adopted into this faith. It's sort of understanding kind of how all that worked and kind of how things have been, been sort of flipped around throughout history. So I sort of latched on to ministries like that and, and to chosen people ministries. But still, there was nothing in my, in my local area. I started going to uh, churches, uh, you know, in that area. And it didn't really, it wasn't until I went to, a, I, I won't give you my, the, the church story, but that's kind of, that's kind of, kind of up to the point, point A of, you know, coming to know the Lord, coming to accept the Bible. It didn't mean I, I, I didn't have, you know, I didn't devour it to hear stories about, you know, Michael Brown, you know, learning 3,000 scriptures a year kind of thing. That wasn't my, my experience. Um, but I started going to churches and, or a church. I, I'm not a church hopper kind of guy. But I went to one particular congregation, and I stayed there for many years. Um, and uh, wasn't really, at some point I finally realized that something was sort of missing there. I was missing some kind of foundation. And I went to another congregation where I started growing there. But still, when I look back, I have, uh, I have notes from that congregation that they used to do little you know, message notes in the bulletin. I look at all the messages, wonderful places, growing uh, 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 independent Baptist church in Southwest Virginia. And, uh, but all the messages, there's really nothing for me as a, as a Jewish person trying to at least understand where, you know, my heritage and understand uh, the foundation and everything. Uh, all the messages were, were New Covenant messages, and I never remember anything bringing in any kind of context from the Old Covenant. People would come, you know, come with uh, their, new, their, their Bibles, and this, this would be their Bible, you know. It would be this. I said, what about that, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it was like this is what they'd come with. And the truth is, even if you took the Old Covenant out of, out of this, you'd probably have that, you know. So I, I, I knew something, and no, 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 nothing harmful was meant, but I realized something was clearly, uh, was clearly missing there. Um, and uh, so I, I'll, again, I'll skip through some of the details. Um, doing okay here. So, um, but I ended up moving to Maryland. There's a lot of details behind that. I didn't want to leave that area. I wasn't looking to, but, you know, again, we look, this is kind of the God part of it where I think, okay, this is what happened, but maybe God knew this is what was happening, but I had to go home to take care of a, my mother who was very ill, and it was a real tough decision. I didn't want to leave the area. I had all these reasons why, why I didn't want to go to back, back home, and um, but I did. I, I, I was praying with, I had a mentoring relationship at this, this church, and I was talking to you know, this, this pastor there, and he gave me the confidence to realize that I could take, I didn't have to know what was awaiting me when I moved to Maryland. I just knew that if that was the next step I was supposed to take. And it was pretty clear that I needed to go back. I certainly didn't know beyond taking care of my mother what was going to happen. So I made the decision to go. And literally that weekend, my mother passed away. But I knew that the decision to go was the right thing. So I went back to Maryland. I had a job lined up and everything. And, you know, uh, ended up saying, well, now, now that I'm in Maryland, there's a guy that I met at this church in southwestern Virginia who was a missionary. He had a ministry called Middle East Ministries. His name was Larry Jaffrey. I don't know if anybody has ever heard that name. Probably not. It's a small, small ministry in northern Virginia. And uh, I knew he was kind of in the northern Virginia area, and I called him about, you know, I wanted to go to a Messianic congregation because there was no such thing, and, and I'd been sort of desiring this, uh, but there was no such thing where I was. So I got up there, and I called him, and he told me a church to go to, and he told me a Messianic congregation to go to. So this church is kind of like the one you've been at, it's a really good place, and this is a Messianic congregation you should go to if you go there. So I started going to the, the church, and then I was going to go to the Messianic congregation, and uh, I don't want to say obstacles came up, just weird stuff came up, like I couldn't get there. Traffic was so, I mean, this is D.C., and it's not Denver, and oh, Santa Fe is so crowded, oh, 25 is so crowded, I waited 10 minutes in traffic. No, it's, you know, it's not that. This is like, it took me three hours to get out of D.C. today kind of thing, and I couldn't get to Rockville on time, and, you know, so I literally couldn't get to this service. One day, my car overheated. Now, I didn't have some wonderful vehicle, but, like, my car's never overheated. Like, I was the disabled vehicle, they call on the side of the road you hear on the, on the news up there. I was the disabled vehicle. Like, you got to be kidding me. So I just, you know what, I guess I'm not supposed to go. You know, that's because I, I, I did that great interpretation. I'm not supposed to go to this place, so I just won't go. So I started going to this, this other, this other uh, church, which is a great church. So I go to this church for a while, start getting involved there, and then one day uh, a gentleman uh, shows up to do Jewish evangelism, you know, how to share the gospel with Jews. It turns out it's the, it's the leader of this congregation that I had to, never could go to. So he does a three-week thing on Jewish evangelism, and I kind of say, oh, I'm going to get back to that place. I love what he had to say. Uh, 
And uh, so I got back to this congregation. And to make a long story short, I really felt at home there. And I, I saw, uh, the first time I went, I saw a guy named Sam Nadler, which probably a lot of you know his name too. And uh, I didn't know what he was talking about. I didn't necessarily understand it, but I knew he sounded real Jewish to me. So I felt, kind of felt a little bit at home. Uh, and I felt like, boy, somebody kind of understands uh, what's going on here. So I started going to this congregation and uh, met the leader of that congregation. The leader of that congregation was actually... Uh, was mentored or started by this guy, Larry Jaffrey, started this congregation. Um, and then many years later, I ended up getting married in the church in southwestern Virginia by the leader of this congregation. It was a missionary chosen people ministry. And was, I was, I was going to go really fast there. This very big circle, amazing sort of connection of dots that uh, I got married in, a, in, a ch- in the church where I met Larry Jaffrey, which led me to the guy who uh, was a CPM missionary. And I always thought I'd like to get married by like this sort of a messianic rabbi. That'd be kind of cool. And, uh, but it turns out I, now, I, now I know this guy, I have a relationship with him, and we went back down to this church where I met, where it kind of all started. It was kind of a neat process there. But through my attendance at this messianic congregation, um, for some reason, the congregation, uh, the congregational leader there, I wanted me to be in leadership as an, on an elder board. And uh, so... We, we did that, and then at some point, I'm sort of jumping steps here because I do want to get to the text, uh, but I want to get you up to where I am right now, which we're close, we're very close. <laughs> you can think about intermission here in a minute, just in your mind, but keep your bodies here. Um, that uh, the, um, what was I saying about the congregation? Oh, the eldership. So my wife, my wife who, is not, who, was, uh, who was my wife at the time, I won't get into that, it's another story. But uh, she said, why don't you go to, uh, you should take some Bible classes. Because she realized that really my Bible knowledge was, it was what I'd heard from stage, but I didn't, I wasn't really, never really studied the Bible, didn't know how to, still didn't know how to, still had a deficiency. And it's amazing, from 30 years ago, I can remember, you know, you can remember languages in Hebrew and so forth. So the fact that I didn't have that basis growing up, that that's a, was a big, you know, uh, liability, as it were. So um, I didn't know the Bible the way I needed to. And she said, why don't you take some Bible classes? And there's a, there's a seminary literally five minutes from our house in Maryland that I started going to take Bible classes. And I think within the first couple weeks of taking classes, uh, and I was working full-time and taking two classes, I said, man, this is, this is great. You know, this is, I mean, the Bible was coming alive. This is a real solid Bible teaching. I'm having to write papers, and I'm pulling out even the little hair I have trying to work through these issues. I'm having to write papers about you know, divorce and remarriage, and what do the sons of God in Genesis mean? And well, I think, well, everyone must know that. And you realize, man, this, 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 is, this is sort of fun, as it were. So it was very, very intriguing at the time. And right at that moment, this is probably back in 2007, maybe, or 2008, maybe, that I started taking these classes. And I, at that point, I sort of, uh, my mother-in-law said, you should go to uh, school full-time, is what she said. I'm thinking, how could I possibly do that? But I wrote, I wrote a little timeline, thinking how I could possibly do that, and wrote some indicators. I would have to do this, this, and this, and how would it, how would it work? And... Uh, to make that long story short, I completed a, a series of six Bible, cor- uh, six Bible courses there, the whole English Bible, and uh, had heard about the program at Denver Seminary. And so I decided that's where I would go to full-time to, to study Messianic Jewish studies here. So that's, that's how I ended up here, as far as I can tell. <laughs> and maybe you guys got some insight as I was telling those stories. And now I stand here again as that as that newly licensed uh, driver, almost, although I don't really have my, there's no license. The, the funny thing is I, I will end up uh, uh, ideally in a year with a Master's of Divinity degree, which is kind of, I just, I wish we should change, you should change it somehow. You know, Master of Divinity. You know, like, yeah, there's, there's one Master of Divinity, and actually he talks about himself at the end of this chapter, I mean, the end of this verse in verse 12. There's only one, and it won't be Dave Katz, although I will technically have some piece of paper that says it. It really won't really mean that, but um, so that's kind of w- why I stand here today, um, or why I think I stand here today. And, and there's some details I left out, and you're more than welcome to ask me, and I can tell you it's none of your business, or, you know, <laughs> I, can, or, I, can, or I can share with you anything that I did leave out. Um, but I kind of, uh, hopefully there was something in there that was re- redemptive or that, you know, um, you could re- relate with. Um, there's probably parts that I am forgetting, and again, parts that I was completely oblivious to. But I think all of us, it's good sometimes to to evaluate where you are and, um, you know, I can always say, well, this happened because, yeah, well, you know, a, a particular situation or, you know, I was able to, uh, to, to pay my bill this month because, you know, someone gave me money this month, but that has nothing to do with this next month. I mean, the truth is God's sort of involved with everything and, and, and he's, he, he, uh, he calls us to, to understand that. And I think sort of evaluating that from time to time is good and I don't, I don't rehearse this, uh, 
this sort of talk or these things in my head all the time, but I think if, if you do, I think it, it does help you to realize that, you know, there's no real accidents why you are. I mean, there's reasons why you are where you are, and you can see, wow, you know, if, if I'd have left home two minutes earlier, I'd have been in that accident, or whatever the case is. There's so many things like that w- we, can, we can point to um, in our life. I think it's good to, to evaluate that from time to time and to realize that, that God is sovereign, whether we believe it or not. And that's what I, I hope we'll get out of this passage today as we take uh, another few minutes to kind of look, look at this and go through and, and see that that's really the big message uh, of this book. First of all, if you want to turn in your Bible to where Linda was reading from, um, this is, uh, actually, this is, I teased Mr. Grant about this, but this is actually the book of Yaakov. This is the book of Jacob. Um, if you read it, if you read the, you know, what it is, there's, there's, this is a question as to who wrote it, but if we assume that it's the brother of Yeshua um, who wrote the book, or not assume, there's good reasons to think that it is, his name wasn't James, or Jim, Jimbo, Jim Bob, whatever they call Mr. Grant here. Uh, Yaakov. I call him Yaakov sometimes. But, you know, honestly, here, here's another thing. I didn't know that till last semester, really. Last, this semester, we've been studying this book in class. So I really didn't know that. I didn't think about it. I think maybe I, uh, Michael Brown writes in there, you know, about some of these books in the book of Jude. It's, you know, Yehuda and, and so forth. And th- these things that you don't necessarily know that are, that are uh, trans, trans kind of, become James, you know. Um, but this is the book of Jacob, and some people say that it's, uh, some people feel that it's probably one of the first books or the first book of the New Testament that's, that was written. Um, and there's, and I won't get into questions about dating it and so forth. These are very exciting things that masters of divinity get into and study, and maybe other people who, you know, have, have more time than they need on their hands to, to answer questions like, when was it written? And, but some of those things are very important. But I think one thing that's very important, if you go back and read this whole book, we're just going to read a very small section of it. If you notice, it's a very small, a very short book, so you can read it all in its full context. I'll try to get us up to the context of where we find ourselves here in chapter 4. But there's a lot of things going on in this book, and it's a very, it's a very Jewish book. And there's a lot of things that are difficult to understand, If number one, if you don't know Hebrew even, or if you don't know some things about Judaism. And, and I don't think, you know, I don't come close to knowing what's, uh, what his original audience probably knew, the audience, his audience most likely was made up a majority of, of Jewish people. And their situation was pretty dire. Um, and we can probably relate to it in some respects, if not in our own life, just with uh, other situations in the world. But there was certainly some persecution going on amongst these people. Um, and a lot of it due to their, their faith. And again, one of the first books that was, that was probably written on the New Testament scriptures. So in chapter 4, where Linda had started with, this is sort of an expansion uh, going into some detail from chapter 3. Chapter 3 is that famous, if you know anything about James, probably the, you probably think of a couple things. Number one, faith without works, you know, and the coupling of those two things, and also the power of what we say and how what we say is so very important. Um, and words do matter, and words can hurt, whether you say that sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. They really do. And in, in the latter part of chapter 13, uh, James is talking about, he had just finished talking about the power of what we say. And then he says, look, there's basically two kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom that comes from heaven, and there's wisdom that comes from somewhere else. Uh, and it comes from down below. And he says the wisdom that comes from heaven, that, that's the good stuff. That's, you know, it's born out of, uh, or it's, it's born out of wisdom, but you, you're, you're gentle. Your life, the works you do, these things are done in gentleness. But the opposite, uh, he says, is bitter envy, selfish ambition. Uh, these kind of things are devilish, and they cause disorder of every kind. So this is where we begin verse, verse uh, I mean, chapter 4, where he's kind of talking about this disorder and what's going on. That's why, you know, we, there's a lot of things we could, we could sort of preach about from this section, but the one thing that I put in your bulletin or I was, that I said there was just about conflicts and how to re- resolve them, because this is what he's talking about. You know, if you, if you don't have this gentleness that's born from wisdom, the opposite is this, con- this conflict. So he starts off and he says, you know, there's conflicts and disputes among you. Where do they come from? Don't they come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something, you don't have it. You murder, you covet. You, basically the cyc- cyc- cyclical process. You're wanting and you can't achieve. Um, and this is, it's, it's kind of funny, not, not funny, but the, um, you know, at, at my house, conflicts and disputes are, are not uncommon. Um, and it's not, and don't, don't think, you know, I got three little kids. That's what I'm talking. I'm pointing the finger at them. Okay, so um, usually when I enter the room and I, and I hear this weeping and wailing, you know, usually it's my little boy, and uh, 
you know, I ask him this question. I, I reluctantly investigate. I don't think, you know, the best private investigator in the world could ever really figure out what caused this fight, you know. Never. You could never really get to the bottom of what happened. But I try. I reluctantly try every once in a while. Sometimes we just assume everyone's guilty and we just, you know, mete out punishment there. But other times I honestly will try to find out. And I ask basically this question. And where is this conflict, this dispute coming from among you, Zach? And he says, well, Sophia hit me. So then I turn my attention there. And did, did you hit him? Yes, I hit him. Well, why did you hit him? He hit me first. Okay. So <laughs> did you hit her first? Yes, I hit her first because she didn't, didn't play with me. She didn't want to play the way I wanted to play or something. Okay, so really the reason you hit her was that because you didn't get what you wanted to get. I and mean, that's the ultimate crux of it. And um, it's kind of funny when I talk about it in terms of, of the kids, but um, I'll speak for myself. I won't give you a statistic, but more often than not, when I'm upset, I don't care what it is, for the most part, more often than not, it's due to this. It's due to the fact that there's some unmet need, some unmet desire, some unmet craving in my own life, you know? Um, you know, if someone, if someone runs into my car, oh, man, we're, we're upset, or someone cuts me off, you know, if they run, run into my car, I'm upset. Well, if I'm honest, I'm not trying to be goody two-shoes. If I'm honest about it, maybe it's because I don't have money to fix this or the trouble to go. I mean, it's some personal thing that's really going on inside of me that's causing this issue. However, that's not what I'm going to say initially. You know, when that driver gets out of the car, they're not going to say, you know what, I am so mad, but it's because really, you know, I've got, my, I've got issues going on at home and my job's not going too well and I just got this news about this medical situation. It's really not the fact that you ran into my car. No, it's going to be, what are you... Sh- what are you doing? Look at where you're going, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, and, and James asked this question. This is not, this is a, called a rhetorical question. He's not really looking for an answer, but I do, I kind of wonder if he would have really asked it as a real question what the response would have been. I don't think it's the response he would have given. It's, hey, well, why are you guys fighting, you know, amongst yourselves? They would have had reasons. Well, Mike Mahoney did this, and, you know, so-and-so did this, and that's, and they would have had all these justifications, but the truth is, it's probably not, that's not the real reason. And, and that's what James highlights here right from the start. These are the symptoms he's, he's noticing. Look, here's what's going on. You, 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 you're, you're, you know, you're doing all these things. And in, in the wording here, it's very active wording. This is not like, why were you upset yesterday? Why did you get in that fight? When you, when you look at kind of the underlying uh, uh, grammar here, if you will, it's these, why, are you, why is this part of your life? Why are you this kind of person? Why are you craving? Why are you desiring? Why are you killing? And, and the language here, the words here, um, they don't, and you may have different, trans, you're going to have a lot of different translations in this particular section of James. Um, there's no need to soften these. Like, why are you, you know, there is the concept of arguing, but there's also the real legitimate, why are you killing, like bl- shedding blood? Why are you killing? It gets into a whole other question about was that really happening and so forth. But to me, it doesn't really matter. Um, you can be responsible for things. You could be responsible for deaths that you aren't really didn't do the physical killing. Uh, we look in uh, with King David and Bathsheba, for instance. He didn't kill the uh, Uriah, his, the, the husband of Bathsheba, but he was definitely very responsible for it. And even beyond that, the, Yeshua says in, 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 in the Sermon on the Mount, that, I mean, he makes it pretty clear that in God's economy, it doesn't matter whether you're mad at somebody or whether you killed them. They're the same. And that's sometimes a hard one for us to get our heads around. But that's, that's, the, that's what's really he's saying here. He doesn't, you know, don't try to read too much in. Well, I didn't really kill somebody, so he's not talking to me. No, he's talking to you. Um, he's, talking, he's talking to all the, I'm saying you, the, the, the audience at the time, not, not James Grant, of course. Um, but, the, uh, but this is very, again, very active wording and so forth. This is really, this is going on. And then the next several verses, starting in verse 4, going through verse uh, 5 there, he kind of looked at the symptoms at first. This is what's going on. These are all the things you're doing. This is part of your life. You're doing this stuff. And here's the reason. I think in Linda's translation, uh, you know, it said, uh, you are uh, adulterous women, I think. So clearly he's talking about women here, right? And all the guys can just, you know. Really what it says, it says adulteresses is what it says. Um, and some people have a problem with that because, oh, well, this is a discrimination against women. Now, this is, again, this is kind of goes into the, 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 the Jewish background of this book. And when you read, the, when you read the, uh, the Torah and you see and you read the prophets, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's this idea that there's an unfaithfulness, uh, that, that Israel continue, had this cycle of unfaithfulness to God. And there's plenty of wording about, you know, you're like, a, you know, at the best you've been unfaithful, but most likely, you know, 
you for, I mean, at the best you've forgotten God, but at the worst, Israel, you've, you've slept with other gods and you've been a complete adulteress. So that's kind of, he's like, it's one of these things. I think what he's doing in this, this thing here. He's sort of like, wake up here. You guys, you're going in the wrong direction. And he says, the reason that all these things are happening to you, the real reason for this disease is that you've, you've strayed away from God and you've become a friend of the world and an enemy of God. And this idea of friendship with the world, and again, we get the few of the young people in here, which is good too. Maybe there's some of us uh, uh, not as young people that are on Facebook or on some of these social media things, and you've got 800 friends. I'm sure Ariel's got a lot. I didn't check. You probably got like 1,000 friends probably. Um, but what's the, is it really possible that, that, that he has 1,000 friends or, or 200 friends? Let's say it's 75. Is that really possible that he has 75 friends? And is that what, what James is talking about here when he says you become a friend of the world? You have, you have you know, friended 72 people on Facebook. That's not what he's saying. Um, this idea of friendship goes pretty deep. This is more of a uh, the kind of relationship where you probably only have one of these in your life. It's more of like a, a true, you know, this is the kind of friendship where you'll, you'll lay your life down for somebody. So it's not that you just sort of, you know, you, you sort of forget about God. You've really got yourself wrapped up in the things of the world until you've become a sort of an intimately involved with the things of the world. And um, to me, this is the crux of, you know, my issues. If I, and I want you to think about it just for a minute. I won't, you know, I won't ask you to write it or we won't do anything like that. But if you were to write, to, to, you can write it if you want to, um, but think about one, two at the most. Maybe try to come up with two things that you feel really are at the crux of, of, of your anger, if, if you're angry, if you get angry or disappointed or frustrated, what they are. And if there's something spiritual, I mean, praise God, it really, if it really is. But if it's not, I think that just shows it to the extent that, you know, uh, I mean, I could divulge to you two things easily. Um, and I can tell you, I won't tell you what they are, but I know they're, they're completely not anything to do with God. They're completely, you know, things not of God. It's not that uh, I'm upset because of some deep-seated spiritual, cognizant, conscious spiritual issue, but it is, it is a, it's something that has to do with the world, that we easily slip away and we can get, get wrapped up in these things. It could be your job. It could be, it could be money, you know. Uh, it could be school performance. Um, it could be something physical. I mean, it could be all kinds of things, um, but I think that's really the root of what makes someone a friend of the world and to become intimately involved with the things of the world. And that's what what, what James is saying here, and he goes on to say that, I mean, the big picture is these are your problems, these are your symptoms. This is the real reason. This is the, this is the disease, as it were. The disease is friendship of the world. And the adulteress's uh, imagery, and the next thing he says, for someone who's sort of in the know and realizes, you know, the, what, what happened to Israel when they strayed away from God, um, it should make them a little bit uh, scared, you know. God is a God of wrath. And I think it, uh, I'm almost positive that Linda's translation is a little different in this next section of verse 5. I want to read you mine. It says, Do you suppose it's for nothing that the Scripture says, God yearns jealously for the Spirit He made to dwell in you? And if you don't have that translation, you've got one that says, The Spirit yearns jealously. Um, I'm going to argue that it's God yearning jealously for the Spirit that's inside of you. Because elsewhere in this book, the only other time James talks about the Spirit, he talks about you know, the body without a spirit is... Uh, I mean, faith without works is dead, just like a body without a spirit is dead. It's just the basic life, you know, animating principle in all of us. And I, I'm, what are there, 60, I don't know how many people in the room here, 60 or 45 people. Um, best I can tell, everyone, everyone's heart's beating. I don't see anyone, I'm looking for anyone keeled over. No one is. So we've got a lot of hearts beating. We've got a lot of breathing going on, exchange of air. Just this basic, you know, you're alive kind of thing that I think, you know, I'd love to say when I wake up, I say, oh, thank you, God, that I was breathing all night and just as the life you've given me. Uh, I'd like to say I do that. I don't necessarily do that. And what James is saying is, look, you've strayed away from God. Just the basic life-animating principle God's given you just to sit here and listen to this, you know, he yearns for that. He jealously yearns for that. And it's, and it's not, when we think of jealousy, don't think, oh, it's a negative thing. God couldn't possibly be jealous don't measure God by our standards of what jealousy is. This is a whole other level of what jealousy means. This is trying to preserve something precious. And so this is not a condemning message. It's a wake-up message, but it's not condemning in the fact that God's saying he is ready to strike you down. You have no chance. He's saying, look, God yearns jealously for the very life that he gives you. In fact, so much so that he says he opposes the proud, but there's hope for you if you will humble yourselves before him. And that that is sort of what I think is the the pivot of this message 
is recognizing that God is sovereign, he's omnipotent, and what he's asking for is a return to him. So after he identifies the, the symptoms that are going on in your life, and he identifies the disease that's going on in their life, you know, you've got these, this strife and this contention, and the reason is you've, become a, a lo- you've sort of forgotten God, for lack of, you know, to simplify it. But look, God is, is waiting there for you to return to him. And, and in 7 through 12 here, basically 7 through 10 of these verses is sort of the, the prescription as to how to do that. It says, submit yourselves to God. Theref- you know, therefore, because of this, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near, and he will draw near to you. Uh, cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. It's a complete sort of holistic idea of cleansing everything on the outside and the inside. Cleansing, I mean, when, when the priest went before and did sort of interceded on behalf of the people, um, it was a big deal. It wasn't like, I think we lose that a bit in our, in our culture nowadays. Uh, you know, how many of y'all prayed in the car? That's fine if you did. In the shower? You know, on the toilet? You know? I mean, is that wrong? I don't know that it's necessarily wrong, but the, the, the fact is that prayer and, and submitting yourselves to God and getting right with Him is serious business. I mean, if you had to, before you prayed, clean your hands, change your whole clothes, you know, before, you, I mean, it, it would really make you think about this a lot more. So he's really bringing in this context um, of what it means to submit yourselves to God. And this idea, I think last week, uh, Rabbi Chaim talked about this. This is a thoroughly Jewish idea. This draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Does that sound familiar? It's, it's, uh, it's teshuvah, to return, to turn. The idea that you did last week, I will, I will mimic, uh, that you're walking this way, God's that way, and you need to completely turn and go, the other, go back the other direction. You're heading in the completely opposite direction. And that's what he's saying. This is a, this is a strong promise here. There's all these, uh, these commands to submit, draw near, cleanse your hearts, weep, wail, me. You know, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's a promise. This is a strong promise that, that, that James is giving here. Um, a very strong promise. And, and he's calling us, again, this lament, mourn, and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning, your joy into dejection. Um, again, this is not a condemning kind of message, but the idea is how often... I've had moments in my life where that's happened, where I've really have felt complete you know, remorse for, for what's going on or what I've, what I've, I've neglected... God or neglected my family or other things. Um, but this is serious business here. Um, you know, I don't know how many sports fans we have, and I'm not a huge sports fan. I just follow one particular college football team. That's about it. However, my upstairs neighbors, uh, this semester there was the, the final four, you know, the final four, the college, the big college playoffs. Shino Sharon, she has like, she's crazy about the final four. <laughs> um, but my upstairs neighbors, when this was going on, this, uh, this, this is at the seminary, I mean, it sounded like there was a fight going on upstairs. And there were chairs. And I mean, Jessica, it was crazy. I mean, it was really like, it's unbelievable. I mean, furniture was being moved. And I mean, how easily impacted do we get by a sports event? You know, my attitude can get, can get sort of thrown off a day or two after a particular college football uh, bowl game. Um, but does it really get impacted when I recognize that I've strayed from God and need to come back to him? And do I approach him in that way? Um, and again, not to condemn, but this is to really, this, this is, there's so much vivid language here that's like, this is, this is serious business. This is serious stuff that's going on. Um, and if we can get that sort of, you know, thrown for a loop about sports, what about other stuff? Uh, there was a story that I remember, I read a, a book, a really good book, uh, I thought it was a good book, called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit by a guy named Jack Deere. Have you ever know that book, read the book? He uh, tells a story in there. He's an ex-seminary professor. He tells a story about having lunch with a few seminary students one day, um, and they were, he was talking to them, and he was talking about a particular speaker that was going to be coming to the seminary, and one of the students just went, oh, he was just upset about it. He said, ah, and Jack Deere said, what's the problem? What's wrong with you know, this gentleman? He goes, well, he's with this seminary over here. So? So they don't believe in the authority of Scripture. Do you know that? They don't believe in the it's inerrant word of God or some you know, detailed theological concept and because of that, I just can't believe anything he, this person says. And he went on and on and on about it. He was up in arms about this, this particular person, very emotional about it. Um, and then later that, that week, the same student was in Jack's office. And he, asked, he said, you know, he was talking about this problem he was having, this real, this, excuse me, he said, you know, I've, I've, been, uh, I've been married for seven years now. I've got a few kids. I've been in seminary for five years. And he said, I have a real problem, though, with, um, you know, with, with, it's terrible, but I, you know, I, I've, I've had a problem with, uh, with, with prostitution, you know. He said, I don't know what to do about it, you know. It's kind of like, well, I really feel bad about it, but I don't know what to do about it. 
And Jack said he, he talked and prayed with him and so forth. But he said the one thing that struck him later on, he said, you know, he was like a fraction uh, as emotional about that issue in his life than he was about this, you know, this guy over here who, who doesn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, so to speak. When it came to sin and repentance, that was just lacking. And uh, for myself, I think that's, that's the case also. And I think that's um, something that I really want to, to get across. Again, not as a, a message of condemnation, but I think you know, in a few moments we'll have an opportunity to, to, to pray here. And, uh, you know, in terms of returning to God, just looking at it a little bit differently than, well, better luck next time, you know. There needs to be a real turning in your life, this idea of repentance. If we just talked about repentance and what that meant and the number of times that repentance comes before salvation, uh, I think we would have plenty to talk about this every, every week of the year probably. Um, but this, I want to just take the, the last few minutes here to talk about this last little section, of starting in verse 11. Um, don't speak evil against one another. That basically means don't slander. Don't, say, don't slander each other. Uh, if you do, you're judging one another. You judge the law. And there's only one person able to judge. Again, a really direct reference here to um, sort of a Jewish understanding. In verse 12, he says, there's one lawgiver and judge. Uh, it actually says one is the lawgiver and there's one. It's, kind of really, it's a pretty uh, direct reference to the Shema, and this, uh, this sort of tenet of our, of our faith, that there is one God and there's one lawgiver. Um, this uh, this kind of ties back to verse 1. This, you know, yes, you've got conflicts and disputes with each other. There's a reason for that. You need to get yourself right with God. But it doesn't end there. Because you can't, you, you can, but you know, you can't. You're not called. We're not called to go off on a mountaintop somewhere or live way out in the country like like the Zims and just stay out there. See, they come into the city. See, so you got to do. You can't just stay out on a mountaintop somewhere and live by yourself. We're, we're gonna, you're gonna interact with other people. And so James is kind of bringing that idea back in. And look, you get yourself right with God, but don't forget, there's other people. There's horizontal relationships that you have to deal with, and don't slander each other. And if you look into this, this word judge appears like six times. You know, you don't judge one another, don't judge a law. You become a judge, and you become a lawgiver. There's only one lawgiver and judge. You know, okay, fine, I get the judging thing. But the, what this is saying, it's, it's beyond, it's slander. But judging in this context has to do with not only you judging, but you are meeting out the sentence. And that's reserved for one person, one person only. And it's very, as, as Chaim would say, it's very pithy in the, in the original language. It's a very pithy way he says it in the Greek. Basically, if I were to paraphrase it, he says, you know, there's one lawgiver who can save and destroy, and it ain't you. That's basically what it says. You know, he says, it ain't you. There's only one. Who are you? It really says, who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor is what it says. Um, so it's, there's only one person here who's able to do that. Um, there's only one judge uh, who's able to meet out that sentence. And this one, I, I didn't talk about a lot of applicable things. I will kind of hear at the end as opposed to interspersing them. But this idea, uh, this is something that, I think um, it's pretty rampant in our society. This, uh, you know, we can we can come to our services and we can praise God and we can we can worship, we can dance, we can we can weep and wail and so forth. But a real test, I think, is is these hor- are these horizontal relationships. You know, you often hear, "Well, I don't follow man, I follow God," and I don't, you know, uh, this can get into a whole area of spiritual leadership. But just leadership in general, we get we can be very comfortable uh, criticizing things. Um, at my home congregation, or this is my home congregation, my former home congregation, um, I dealt with a, a lady there who really, I mean, to this day, I, I keep getting the emails about President Obama. Oh, he's this, he's that. You know, the point is, you're very comfortable speaking out against people, you know. And I think this really ties into the Ten Commandments <laughs> um, about bearing false witness against, uh, bearing false witness. You know, at its core, that's, that's, uh, that's gossiping, you know. And, and you are, whether you realize it or not, when you speak poorly about somebody, we are passing judgment on them. Um, I remember before I, I was going to meet somebody one time, and before I met them, a friend of mine said, yeah, I'm going to introduce you to this guy. And he's a pretty nice guy, but you know, back in college, he definitely drank way too much. And he's, I think he's still a little bit affected by it, a little bit odd in some ways, but he's a good guy. It took me years to get over that one little comment. I was always looking for the little weirdness or the, the tendency t- to drinking or something. I think these kind of offhanded things are very, are very detrimental. So um, that's sort of the, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of pieces to this message that James is saying. But again, when it comes to becoming a, you know, kind of drifting away from God, becoming a, an enemy of the, I mean, a friend of the, a friend of the world, um, or even just the conflicts. Number one, I think I'd, like, I'd encourage you to evaluate the conflicts or when you're upset w- with certain things in your life, whether it's upset with a person or an institution. 
uh, really evaluate what, the, what the, the seed of that, of that frustration is. And if it's something real specific, like someone really did do something, maybe they didn't realize, then, then we take the necessary steps to go and talk to that person, talk to that institution, whether it's, I say institution because we just had tax season, maybe there's some tax issues or you never know. But you know, if there's a real seed of something there that's legitimate, then handle it in the right way. Don't speak against them or against the person or the institution. Or uh, if it's not, if it's something spiritual, that's an area for prayer, which is what we're going to do in a minute. And I, I encourage you to, as we take a moment to evaluate, you know, are there some things that, are really, that I, I really need to deal with with a person or are there some things I need to deal with with, with myself with regard to this, these conflicts and disputes and this continual cycle of wanting? Even when I get it, it seems just to slip through my fingers. Um, and another thing which may not be, well, you never, never know, um, is you can't, uh, it's difficult to insulate ourselves from media and other things. And uh, I think just because I'm, I'm in school, I've been able to step away from TV a lot more than I did. But it's interesting when I go back to it and I look at TV now, it's just silly. <laughs> you know, so much is just silly, uh, except for the Virginia Tech Hokies when they're playing football. That's serious business. <laughs> but, um, but seriously, most of that stuff is just silly. And I think if it weren't for that time away, I would never get that perspective. And I think those are things that easily seep in to cause dissatisfaction in our lives, which, again, can fuel something completely unrelated, you know. Um, So I would encourage you to consider how much you sort of take in uh, actively, because passively it's very difficult to, you know, there's billboards, there's things that are constantly that you take in uh, very passively. But I think we have a lot of uh, of control over what we take in actively. So consider what's really going on, the seed of your, your frustrations, uh, consider th- what you take in actively in terms of media, and, uh, and also be very careful as to what we, uh, what we say to one another. So that's the message uh, that I, I wanted to, some of the highlights that I think that um, I think James was talking about to his audience here, because they were experiencing, in addition to all these other things, they were experiencing, experiencing some really very strong persecution and very strong oppression, and they needed some encouragement that way to realize that regardless of what's going on, it doesn't erase the fact that God is sovereign over all things, and ultimately we need to uh, return to him. Thank you, David. Let's please stand. James puts shoes on, on our spiritual feet. You know, we turn to the Lord. When we do turn to the Lord... And yet we're not willing to allow that to play out in our life, in our relationships. We're going to be worshiping the Lord quietly for a few minutes. The musicians will come, but um, welcome the Lord to speak to you about these horizontal relationships. How our relationship with the Lord vertical plays out demonstrates itself in how we relate to one another. Father God, we are indeed humbled before you. And we recognize our sin. Lord God, how we drift from you because we pursue other gods and goddesses. And uh, Lord, we... want to follow you wholeheartedly, Lord, even in the difficult areas, Lord, how it plays out in our, how we relate to one another. We pray, Lord God, for your spirit to stir us, to touch us, to speak to us, Lord God, where you want us to change. Give us, Lord God, the eyes of faith to trust you for that change as well, Lord. Receive the honor and the glory in our life through the transformation. In Yeshua's name. Amen.